It's the first week of 2013, and this is MASHCAST number 75. Smashcast. I'm Jarrett, and I'm here with podcast host and staff writer Nick Zelenkevich. Hey, Happy New Year! How's everybody doing? Yes, and just me and Nick again here, but we have a uh, gonna do things a little different. Um, no, what have you been playing this week? Because we have an interview with the co-founder of Cipher Prime Studios, Dane Saint, that we did uh, not too long ago. So uh, we're going to load that up for you guys. You can listen to that good interview with Dane Saint regarding uh, his games and about him and Cypher Prime. So uh, we'll let that play now, and then we'll be back after. All right, so today we have uh, here with us Dane Saint from Cypher Prime Studios. He is the the co-founder of Cypher Prime. How are you, Dane? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing okay. (laughs) A little sick, but I'll, I'll be... Uh, just fine. So, uh, for those not familiar with you and Cypher Prime, why don't you, you know, tell us about yourself and then tell us a little bit, uh, about Cypher Prime. Um, I, I personally am, am not that interesting. The company is a lot of fun though. We've, um, we've been making games, uh, video games for about four years now, I think. Um, and we, we sort of have a unique brand of, odd music visual experience stuff. Um, we came out with a title called Auditorium about four years ago um, that took off um, online in Flash and then made its way to iPhone, PS3, Mac, PC, and a bunch of other places like that. Um, a couple other titles have come up with in the past few years. We had uh, Fractal that came out after that, Pulse, which was popular on iPad, and then this year we released uh, splice, which is less of a music game and more of a uh, like a gene splicing puzzle experience. Um, so we we have this sort of penchant for making um, very experimental sort of games, um, and have found a good amount of success doing it. And you know, we're based out of Philly, and we, we love the city and love uh, having this sort of community around us. So okay. Well, uh, Cypher Prime, it, 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 was it just you in the beginning, or did you have, you know, how, how did you guys start off? Um, it's, uh, it started off with two guys. It was me and, and my business partner. We started off in, I guess, 2008, if I'm doing my math right. Um, memory, memory and time and dates are not, not my strong suits. But um, what had happened was uh, a mutual friend introduced us over um, – Smash Brothers, actually, when Smash Brothers Brawl came out. So when, whenever Brawl came out is when this, this story starts. Um, and he was having a party doing a Smash for Shots. So we'd get together and get a box of wine. And every time you would get a KO, you would take a shot of the wine. It kind of worked out like a handicapping system. 
Um, and over that, we showed each other our portfolios, thought we made cool work, didn't talk to each other for like three or four months after that. And then I got fed up with my job and left, wanted to start a company, filed the paperwork. About a week later, I got a call from, from Will and he says, hey, I just quit my job. I'm fed up with it. I want to start a company. And I said, well, I've already started this company. Why don't you come on board? So um, we started off as an interactive media company doing like high-end flash work for like pharmaceutical companies and you know boring stuff like that. And we said, we need to do something interesting to sort of put ourselves on the map and show people what we can do. And that turned into auditorium. Um, and then we kind of realized, well, we could just keep making games instead of doing this boring pharma work. And now we, now we make games. So we kind of fell fell sideways into it. So, so you came at game development then sort of sideways through Flash development? Or were you more of just a general developer prior to that? And, and I guess maybe you sort of had, I guess, the inspiration to sort of work on games in general. Or was it mostly your work on Flash that led that way? Well, I mean, bo both of us, um, you know, have always loved games. I, I had done a lot of uh, 3D modeling and whatnot when I was younger, and he, he was actually a professional uh, Quake player. He's got the tattoo and everything. So, like, we always had this, like, big interest in it. Uh, we just didn't see the money in it. So um, we had both worked as developers and designers. He, he's uh, definitely a stronger designer. I'm a stronger developer, and that was kind of how our skills lined up. And we had come in through the web world um, just doing high-end flash work. So we wanted to show off the coolest flash thing we could possibly come up with because that's, that's the kind of work we were getting. And um, it turned into a game because why would you make anything else if you could make a game? So, um, so yeah, we, we sort of went in that direction, but realizing that we could make money off of it and like, make a living off of that was definitely... Um, kind of came out of sideways. So do you develop most of your games in Flash first and then port them over to whatever platform you're, they wind up becoming? Or do you have sort of another medium that you port them all into Flash and then whatnot from there? Well, we, we used to do Flash. Um, that's because we were, that's what we knew. We were very good at it. Um, but Flash isn't... It's great for making games. It's not great for making cross-platform games. Um, so when we had auditorium, people were like, oh my God, this game's great. I want it on my iPhone. And we're like, I have no idea how to do that. And then people were like, oh, I want it on the PSP or on the, on this, this, that, and the third. And we had no idea how to do that. So we were getting into porting deals and talking to publishers and, you know, doing a lot of not making games in order to try and get our games on other platforms. Um, but, uh, about two years ago, I guess now, um, beginning of last year or so, we, made the switch to Unity, um, which has been fantastic. You know, we had a bit of a learning curve with it, but once we were able to sort of get past that 2D, 3D switch and, you know, spruce up our, our pipeline, now, you know, Splice came out at the beginning of this year as just a Mac PC title, and now it's, you know, Mac PC, iPad, Mac App Store, um, Android, Linux, just because we're in a much better environment that's suited for uh, multi-platform. So we, we still have the, the Flash skills around, but we, we definitely switched the whole studio over to Unity. Okay. Now, I guess with the, with the current climate in gaming, is there even a reason to put that game in Flash at this point? Um, well, interestingly enough, uh, Adobe and Unity sort of partnered up, and Unity can export FWFs. So 
Um, there, Flash definitely has a lot of strengths over Unity for 2D stuff. So if we like we every week we have this um, developer night, dev night at our um, studio where we just get all the local uh, Philadelphia and Jersey people to come to the studio and hang out and make stuff. And we do game jams once a month um, with that. So if I were going to do something that was a game jam game or something smaller and I wanted to be a 2D experience, I think I'd probably do it in Flash just because Flash's 2D is a lot stronger um, than Unity's. Unity's is definitely a 3, 3D engine. So if you want to do some, something simple like a mask, you know, just punch out a, a moon out of a piece of construction paper or something like that. In Flash, you can do that in 35 seconds. In Unity, you're going to have to write custom shaders and go or get a whole other repository of you know, software to replicate that effect, and it still won't look exactly the way you want it to. Um, so, yeah, Unity, Unity is a better platform, but Flash has stronger 2D is basically how it, how it breaks down. Um, I know, though, that Scaleform is now available for Unity, so if you happen to have the thousands of dollars lying around, you can take your Flash and put it directly into Unity and call it a day. Okay, sounds fair. <laughs> Um, so these are the game jams that you have. Uh, have any of these games ever, uh, I guess, kind of came out of the game jam and turned into something more, or is it just something that you have sitting in the, you know, in a in a box somewhere? Um, well, the the thing is, like, we so it started off as two of us, and we're up to five now. We all love making games. We have game ideas all the time, and. Yeah, we we're a pretty quick studio. You know, Splice maybe took us I want to say six to eight months from conception to market, which is a short period of time to develop a game. But we're also pretty impatient, and we're all ADD. So while we're developing a longer title like that, we're gonna have oh, I want to do this weird experience. I want to make a fighting game that has no fighting in it, or or whatever. You know. <laughs> silly ideas come to mind. So that's where the Dev Night stuff sort of comes in and allows us to work on, have a, a time set aside every week to work on whatever weird ideas we have. And from that, we do see, um, there, there's a, an idea that I had come up with, I guess, two game jams ago now that is going to be one of our next full titles, but we have to get there. So it's like we're gonna, we finished up uh, Splice, and now we're going to go into Auditorium Duet, which is the sequel to the first one that we had done. And once that's done, then we go into this Game Jam game because we need everybody working on it. So um, I guess the answer is yes, but with some caveats. Gotcha. So yes, we just haven't seen the fruits of that yet. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So I guess while we're on the topic of, of you know your games, what gives you like well i guess where do you take the inspiration for your games like where did you come up with the idea for for auditorium because i mean i played auditorium i i was it was while it was in flash i mm -hmm. think sometime either like so it, it was either 2008 or 2009 and it was just a very unique game and it had me hooked it definitely killed my work productivity <laughs> for, for a few days I got a lot of those complaints. <laughs> it, it did because you just kind of sit there like, I know I can fill this bar. I just, I just got to figure it out. Like, I'm just going to sit here until I find out what I'm doing wrong here. <laughs> so like, where do you get an idea for a game like that? And then, you know, Fract, you know, Fractal and then Splice are all totally different. So like, how are you kind of generating these ideas? Um, 
it, there, there's no real like outline for it. You know, it, we don't hop into the generate idea flowchart. You know, it, it's <laughs> um, auditorium was found definitely. We were trying to make a much different game um, when we settled on auditorium. Um, we actually wanted, we wanted to make a shmup. You know, we wanted to make an old school like Strikers 1945 kind of. You know, fly around and blow things up because, you know, like, like I said, we're ADD. Right. <laughs> um, so we, we wanted to make a bullet hell game. And naturally, the first thing I started working on, knowing that we we're going to make a bullet hell game, was the explosion system. And, and in doing that, I ended up creating a particle system that had some cool physical properties. And, you know, my Will was looking at it and I was like, that's pretty cool. And we sat around playing with this thing for a while and he started this spitballing ideas like I, what if we just took those those particles and filled something with it and just made a game out of that and i had a bunch of music that was lying around that i you know some stuff that i had written recently some stuff i'd written back in like seventh grade or whatever and i said well if we do that maybe we can take some of this music and throw it in so it was very much a uh you know reese's peanut butter cup kind of moment where <laughs> like well, we have some gameplay, and I guess we have some music, and I guess we have a game now. Um, so <laughs> we, we, we've sort of taken that approach moving forward where we sort of let the game tell us what it is um, rather than trying to force it necessarily. Um, Fractal we did kind of force, and that one took us a lot longer as a result. Uh, it took us like a year and a half to get Fractal out of the door, and... If I go the rest of my life without working on a game for a year and a half, I'll be a really happy person because I can't. It's too long of a project for me. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yeah, so Auditorium was was accidental. Fractal, we took a small idea that that Will had and fleshed out three complete. I had a way that I wanted to do it. He had a way he wanted to do it, and the intern that we had with us at the time wanted to do it. So we made three completely different modes, and we just went with it. Um, Pulse was another one of Will's ideas um, that he showed us on the back of a napkin over bottomless mimosas, um, <laughs> like you do. And Splice, I came up with in the middle of a 108 degree fever dream. So there's really no like, like I said, generate idea, like idea generator. That's type of rhymes, just wherever we find it. Okay. Uh, maybe I I uh, played Splice for the first time, you know. Once we you know set up the interview, mm-hmm. and I think you need to have more fever dreams, because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's apparently that's that's where it's at. <laughs> I, 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 I like Auditorium and Fractal, but definitely Splice is my favorite one so far. I think definitely our uh, most cohesive experience. I, I think that we we finally got into a, a state of mind where, um, like we we knew it was going to be a niche title. Because really, how many people are going to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to go play with binary trees? Like, it's not <laughs> one of the versions that people tend to have. We knew it was going to be a niche title, and we just decided polish, 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 polish. That's every, everything that we have. We, it, anybody, you know, Auditorium, for instance, was cloned and copied and stolen 150 times. Um, but what we try and have over everyone else is execution because you can't copyright a game idea. Everything comes down to execution. Um, so with splice, that's, a, that's everything that we did was just trying to make it as smooth and intuitive as we possibly could 
given the utterly ridiculous game concept. Um, and so, so having just made a switch over to Unity when we did Pulse, and then also porting Fractal to Unity, we finally sort of found our footing in, in the new platform. Um, I was finally able to leverage some of my older skills as a 3D artist to uh, to get the environment together. And Will was able to leverage his skills. We started bringing on some more people and doing more beta testing and whatnot. So I, 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 I'm proud of Splice. I feel like Splice came out um, very cleanly. And I'd like to see the stuff that we come out in the future be even more polished than that. Okay. Um, so you, go ahead, Nick. I was just say, so you, you feel then, I guess, as the games have progressed, that your execution is getting better? That, that uh, maybe that's one of the things that you're learning as you go along as far as making the game sort of, you know, cleaner and more, you know, tightly winding the gameplay and the presentation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things. It's one of the reasons that we do the uh, the game jams now so, so frequently is to, I mean, it, it's basically like a, a dry run. You know, you 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 go to the gym for a reason, and the game jams are our gym. You know, if you if you're in a studio where you're making a game once every you know two to three years, the game gets released. You you're only going through the whole process of it once every sorry once every two to three years. Um, you're only going through the whole process of it once every two to three years, and you see the different portions. Oh, here's my UI design portion, and here's the character design portion, and here's the music portion, and you know you, you may only be seeing a small portion of those portions. Um, but when you do the game jams, and we do them once a month, and we, even between them, we might have a little game idea and try and knock something out. It's only twelve hours you get to work on it, and so you you get to do the whole process of idea. To planning, con- con- you know, conception, art, music, everything you can get done in that twelve hours, and it it helps you helps a lot with the execution. Um, and working in that dev night environment where everyone's there, um, you know, between that and playing ludicrous amounts of StarCraft two, our our teamwork has gotten a lot better. So. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think our execution is, is improving. I'd like to see it continue on that on that path. You said StarCraft too. I, I actually I saw your uh, <laughs> I saw your the video you guys you play StarCraft too frequently um, on the podcast. Every I we play StarCraft too. Four o'clock. There's literally a whistle that goes off, like an old steam whistle at the office that goes off. And we punch our cards and we play StarCraft too. And it, it's funny because you know at first we we're like, oh it's great we have this company we got to play some video games but I really do feel like the um, the teamwork aspect of it has actually improved our work because you know we we have some issues with you know somebody might not be speaking up and saying that they complete a task or that they need help with something in StarCraft if you do that you lose so our communication has actually improved as a result of us playing ludicrous amounts of StarCraft we could probably afford to play a little less of it but um you, do, you never can afford to play less StarCraft. <laughs> like, I, the reason I say is because we own, typically on the podcast we do a uh, a part where you know what you've been playing, and I play StarCraft two so much that I can't even talk about it on the podcast anymore. I've banned myself from talking about StarCraft two because each, each week I can actually sit there and talk at least for fifteen minutes about what happened the previous week in StarCraft two to me. We actually did the, uh, the hot beta not too too long ago, so. It's getting to be an issue. But, 
I, I can understand. <laughs> I, I've been there. <laughs> but uh, so um, for your games, uh, you had sent me uh, before the, the soundtrack for Splice before I even really got a chance to play it. Uh, and you, you develop all the music for the games yourself, correct? Uh, that's, that's yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. See, when we started this, you said I'm not that interesting of a person, but I disagree. Because you're the uh, well, I, I, the first time I saw you was at a eight static in person, and at that eight static, I'm sure you remember. But you know your uh, your 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 PC or your Mac had restarted, or, or somebody sorry somebody uh, I think kicked the power out mm-hmm. and it powered down. And so while you're you were in the middle of performing, and then while you're fixing that, you start freestyling on the microphone <laughs> as you're fixing your stuff. That turns you into an interesting person right there, because that is some, that's something that most people could do. I mean, I've been there uh, to eight setting before, and something will go wrong, and then the, you know the show is just kind of paused until you know, uh, you know who is this just paused until the person can get the stuff fixed. And for those who don't know, eight static is a chiptune uh, concert that happens monthly in uh, Philadelphia, but it's not always chiptune music that gets played there. But it's a it's 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 a good show once a month in Philly. Um, but yeah, so you're a very talented musician as well. So could you talk about that for a little bit too? So you know, well, you know, how, tell us about how you get, got so involved with music. Um, well, I mean, I've, I've been I've been playing piano since got kindergarten, I guess, and I'm not I'm not as good as that would lead one to believe. Um, I, I took maybe two years of lessons, you know, back back in middle school. Um, but I've always been sort of dallying on on keyboards and and guitars and been doing some vocal stuff lately. And um, I don't know, my my grandfather actually sat me down in front of the piano um, when I was visiting. Uh, must have been about six or so, and he showed me the first couple of things, and my dad picked it up from there. And then I just, I've always loved um, music, and I've always loved it because I've never had to make a living off of it. So I, I can just do whatever comes to mind. And it, it ends up being a problem with things like 8Static because every time I go there, I play stuff that sounds significantly different than the last time I played stuff. So I'm, I'm actually trying to set up a, uh, a performance now for March. And the booker is like, you got to send me new stuff because I don't know what you sound like anymore. So I don't know who to put you with. <laughs> um, so yeah, like on auditorium is a very orchestral thing. Fractal is actually um, procedurally generated music. Uh, it's got like a, a breakbeat kind of feel to it. Um, Pulse is a weird soundtrack. Uh, we had an employee on at the time that did a lot of those tracks, and we just sort of bounced ideas off each other and tried to out weird one another. So there's like a techno bollywood track on there or something and some dubstep and you know, what this what whatever comes to mind um I, I i think like i try for music i try and challenge myself by you know doing odd genres and not like limiting myself to um the things that i already know because uh, because it I'm at heart i love so if you sit me in front of a piano and just say play something, it'll probably be a jazz thing. And I've been trying to break out of that a lot lately. Okay. 
Well, um, I, I know you said for auditorium, you kind of use tracks that you already had or songs that you already had. Uh, when it came to to Splice, and uh, did you make those tracks specifically for Splice, or were, were, was that also things that you you know you had done independently? No, Splice Splice was uh, was scored. If, if that makes sense, it actually had a pretty in-depth scoring process for uh, for Splice, um, just to try and communicate the feel that we were going for. Um, you know, we we haven't really had the art pipeline to do like cat like characters um in our game so far but we i wanted to create a a narrative create it so, like so when you go in and you play splice and you had you know maybe have your headphones on or you just have the music going and you're you're in there staring at this puzzle you know we're, we're trying to communicate this feeling of being a researcher and Looking at this this thing, this organism or whatever, and trying to figure out how it works this is one of the reasons that the game has no tutorial to speak of and has no instructions. <laughs> you know, we want you to get in there and get frustrated and you know try and you know, pull the thing apart and put it back together and learn for yourself what the rules are. Um, because we like, that win that you get when you when you understand how everything works and nobody told you what it was that feeling that win is so much better than anything that you would get if we just said oh take this and move it over here so um so the soundtrack is you know put together to be for a couple of reasons one to communicate the atmosphere of this sort of research laboratory um two to take very simple melodies and make something that sounds complex out of it um, but also have it, it, it is a weird thing where it sounds complex, but it sounds like so one person could play it, but it's actually written for three pianos. So one person could never play it. So it, it's this weird, you know, simple, complex thing that's happening with it. And um, then also just to be soothing and relaxing and to make sure that when you get utterly stumped and frustrated on a puzzle, you don't punch a hole in the monitor. Um and so, so the music was very specifically crafted for the game um, to, to sort of fit all of those needs. Actually, that, that that sounds like a lot of work <laughs> to do everything that you had just mentioned. Like, how do you even like how do how do you even begin to to compose something like that? Um, so, yeah, it's basically, it's working in limitations. Um, you know, by by saying well, I'm only going to use the piano that cut out a lot of other things that could have, like, oh, what, maybe I should put a guitar on this track or whatnot. But I just made a, a decree at the beginning. Only piano, uh, three pianos on each track. Um, they all had to start exactly the same way. Because um, originally we had an intro that sort of lined up with that uh, music, but we scrapped it, but I, kept, I still kept the opening because I thought it was a good thematic element. And then... For each uh, sequence, you know, I started off in the key of B and then moved down through the, the, the scales for each one. So I knew the first one was going to be in B, the second one was going to be in A, the third one was going to be in G, all the way down to the Cassiel, which was C. Um, and by just putting those limitations together and, and giving yourself, you know, basically lines to color in, um, it cuts down what I think looking back was a very daunting task. So yeah, limitations. 
Okay, gotcha. So I would imagine that composing for something like this is definitely more difficult than composing regular music. Um, it, it's it's interesting. I think that um, I think I actually found it easier because I had the right limitations. And like when, when I'm doing one of my own tracks that doesn't necessarily have that, um, I I have too many options. I started thinking weird things like, oh, I wonder how like, a sitar would sound in the middle of this dubstep track, you know, and then I want to try it out and I want to see. But um, if I stay right from the beginning that I'm not going to explore those avenues, then it makes the writing uh, process, I think, a lot easier. It's because you have a base to start with each time. Okay. Now, just uh, you said earlier, you know, you, did, you really didn't put a tutorial into Splice, which is something that I kind of noticed. Uh, and I actually appreciate it because, you know, I had to actually mess around. I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I'm big into stuff like that. I really don't like hand-holding in games. I mean, games are interactive media. You can interact and learn about what you're supposed to do, you know? And with, you know, I just, that's what I had to do. I kind of just had to play around. I was like, I, at first I was like, what is the, what is the object here? Like, I see these little, these little ovals. And these these ovals are filled in, so maybe I have to fill everything in, and boom, there it was, <laughs> you know. And then you know you start to get the I, I, don't, I guess you don't want to call them power ups, but the, the, the you know the different ones that you know they'll split in half or they'll grow forward, you know stuff like that. So I uh, you know it, if you just think for a second, it's really easy to really uh, not just say really easy, but it, you know it should be common sense of what you should do. Uh, and I love games like that. But are you like are you, you know, at that point, are you worried that you might be isolating some users, like people who just are too lazy to figure it out, or really, I guess, just aren't in the games that much? <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where, um, like, we we always try to make our games accessible without instructions. Um, it's because we feel like, like to, the 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 twenty minute tutorial is to me just lazy game design. Um, just because I feel like, like anybody can hand you an instruction manual, tell you to read it and then do, do the thing. But it's a lot harder to make something that is intuitive, but I think it pays off. Now with Splice, you know, the, the, the concept and the, the subject matter, like I said, we all always knew it was going to be a niche game. So, um, we, I guess felt a little more secure and taking the risk with it. Um, since we, we knew, you know, it was already only going to appeal to people that would look at a game about splicing genes and think, this is something I'm going to buy. Um, so, you know, we, we did take that risk there. And, and if you look at our, our reviews on, like, iTunes and whatnot, you'll see some people that, are, that say, oh, I love the fact that there's no tutorials and doesn't, there's no hand-holding and that feeling of exploration is fantastic. And you'll see, you know, one-star reviews saying, where's the tutorial? I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And um, I, I think it's just a matter of, of personal preference. Um, and also, you know, looking back on it now that the game's been out for nearly a year, I do think that there are some things we could have done differently to make it more, um, more intuitive. Um, but that we just didn't have, you know, the time or the the resources to do at, at the time. So, okay, well, I appreciate it. <laughs> like I said, it's it's it gets so annoying having games that just we you know the first uh, you know a, a perfect example. Um, Assassin's Creed Three. 
I was bored to tears for so long because of how long they took to do tutorials in that game. <laughs> it, dro- it drove me insane. So when I have games that, you know, don't necessarily hold your hand, I, I kind of, you know, really appreciate that. Um, but I don't know, Nick had some, you had, you had a, a, a blog post uh, that Nick was interested in and had some questions about. Yeah, yeah, on the, uh, on the Safer Prime website, uh, about a month or a little, maybe six weeks ago, uh, you had a post uh, arguing about uh, games as art. Okay. Um, and that's sort of been a relevant topic here, especially since Jared just recently converted um, due to Max Payne 3. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could go into that because I thought, I mean, your games, it, 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 I, I've only had the chance to play Auditorium and Fractal, but I mean, I think those are two, especially Auditorium is an amazing example of, of uh, a very artistic game. But I thought the, 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 uh, the story of the dream that you had and the realizations you got out of that were probably one of the best arguments I've seen to 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 sort of argue that games are indeed art. And I was just wondering if you could sort of recap that and maybe uh, expand on that a little bit uh, for our listeners. Um. Yeah. So that, I mean that that's that's an older older post. Um. But we we just put you know put the new websites together. So that's been uh, sort of brought into a separate section now. That's our, our musings where we can go on and ramble about anything. I guess. Um. But in this case. Um. Yeah, I'd, I'd had a really, it was a disturbing nightmare, it was sort of, you know, waking up in a dystopian world where we're running away from predators that are trying to kill us, and it's, you know, myself and a wife character and what I thought was a baby, um, uh, come to find out after a few weeks of doing that in dream time that there were no other humans, and then a few weeks after that, that there was no baby either, and that sort of the realization that I had there was that games are the, you know, evolution of a medium moving towards being able to describe things that happen to us in dream state. That, um, when, when you're dreaming, you are yourself, but different. And it's not a thing that we ever really question in a dream. Um, so, and, and in the same way in, in games, we don't really question that, you know, when you, you know, open up Final Fantasy and you're like, you're the hero, you know, you identify with the main character and all the things happen to, you and you still say, oh, I went to, you know, this, I defeated that boss, even though you're controlling a different character who did it. Um, so that sort of concept of the avatar is something that's always existed um, with us, has always existed, you know, in, in um, other media, you know, we, we try and hint at that idea, but with games you can that are interactive, you know, you can really get to that idea of having the avatar and being yourself, but being a different you. Um, and I can't really think of any other um, medium other than, you know, perhaps acting that can really generate that sense. And so that, that to me is like the, the unique draw of games as an artistic medium um, because a lot of people, you know, if you look at the more cinematic experiences, you know, um, I would even wait, you know, Max Payne 3, it falls on, into the sort of trap of being a movie that you can play. And... I think there, there's that, and that's fantastic. But apart from just having, you know, this sort of author-driven experience, you can also have, 
um, you know, things like in, I guess it was EverQuest where, where you know, a guy literally went and rescued who, his, you know, to be fiance from, you know, a horde of, of whatever and did the, had this whole experience that it happened in the game that wasn't scripted by any author, wasn't created by anyone but the, um, the experiences of the game. And I look at that and I say, well, what other art form can do that? So, you know, I, I don't think that there should really be an argument for games not being art. I mean, it's clearly an artistic statement. And I, I, think, um, I think it was Tycho, Jerry Holkins? Yeah. Um, I was saying, like, this, just a, a brief statement. Like, I don't understand how a, a team of 150 artists working on a project for three years can produce something that's not considered to be art. So it, it's there, – there is a very pragmatic argument and then sort of lofty thing that I'm talking about. I, at the end of the day, it is an artistic medium. And you can do, you know, very schlocky things with it, and we do. But I think that um, – is starting to the form is starting to mature and people are starting to be able to experience and, and create more um, immersive experiences with it. So, so given that, then do you consider yourself, and especially given your your musical interests as expressed earlier, do you consider yourself then to be a developer who's also an artist, or do you consider yourself to be an artist who happens to be a developer? Um. <laughs> I, I I'm not sure how I would answer that. I uh, I don't know. I think uh, probably an artist first. I think that um, all of us the the the, the code is a, a tool to a means to an end. But at the same time, we try to make the code as pretty as we can, and we fail miserably at it a lot of the times. But we we've been paying more attention to sort of code quality and things of that nature. But um, everything, every decision that we make isn't one of, oh, you know, how should we code this? Or, you know, how can we get some achievements in here? Or I wonder if we can, you know, make something for in-app purchases. Um, it, it's a, it's what will make the experience better? What will make the game better? What will make somebody have an emotional attachment to the experience? Um, what make what even just what makes sense for the game? You know, we got uh, an offer a few years back to port uh, Auditorium to the Nintendo DS, and we looked at it and we said, "Well, I know that the the market would probably like it, but I have no idea what we would do with the other screen." And because of that, because and we sat, and we brainstormed, we tried to figure out a way to incorporate both screens that would remain true to the Auditorium experience, and we couldn't come up with anything, so we didn't do the port. Um, and I, I think it's just a matter of, of staying true to the experience and saying, you know, this, this is the experience we're trying to, to you know, communicate to people. And if we can't do that or, you know, yeah, we, we either we can't maintain that integrity or there's a way for us to improve upon it, then those are the directions, that, those are the, th the things that, you know, change up our, our decisions. So obviously, we do make some business-based decisions. So like when we decided to finally port Splice to Android, despite none of us owning Android devices, you know, that was years and years of our fans being like, "For God's sakes, put something on Android, or I'll stab you." Um, That's nice. And, yeah, so <laughs> I'm glad we did. It was it was a difficult process, but that, like, so we we do have you know our business-driven 
um, decisions. But by and large, you know, what determines what goes into the games is artistically driven rather than business or programmatically or um, anything like that. I'm curious now as far as – I can understand not being able to do anything with the second screen on the DS, but I'm curious almost that – I guess you chose not to even put it on that platform at all as opposed to simply just not using the screen, just leaving it blank. Well, yeah. It, it's, it's again one of those things where – I don't know. If you um, – yeah, it, it, you have a DS. You know, Most of the games that I've seen on that – Pokemon game for that, um, Scribblenauts and things like that – the the draw of the device is is using both um both screens and experiences that I've seen that don't now it is have a screen that's attached to my device and why why is it there and it pulls the player out of the experience it becomes a, a sort of thing that is you know scratching at the at the back of their thought um and it just it makes for a suboptimal experience so it's the same reason that a lot of our games that we have done on iPad, people would say, oh, put it on the iPhone. Why You have it on the iPad. You make so much money if you put it on the iPhone. And we say, yeah, but at the same time, there's not nearly as much screen real estate. Everything has to get shrunk down. It's not as good of an experience on the iPhone as the iPad. And, you know, performance suffers. And there are all these things that make the experience suffer. Um, that, you know, that, that's why we haven't put anything on, on the iPhone yet. So. Oh, okay. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess it's good to hear that, you know, your decisions aren't just based on how much money you can actually make <laughs> versus, you know, what's actually best for, for the game. So well, now, I'm sorry, go ahead. We we hope that, we're, we're kind of doing, hoping that by concentrating more on the quality of the final product that the money will follow from that. Um, that's not necessarily the case. But it, it, we feel better about those decisions. So. Right. I guess it's just one of the the perks and the flexibility of being like an independent developer versus being under, under like you know the publisher crunch. <laughs> how do you, how do you feel exactly as uh, a developer with your own marketplace on your website, um, which you said you recently redesigned? Um, but how do you feel there, knowing also that your games are available in other outlets? Uh, and sometimes at it, it, it differing price points than what you're offering on your website. It, I think it's a matter of managing expectations. It's one of those things where, you know, Splice for iPad is a nicer experience from a UI standpoint, from an interaction standpoint. Not as pretty as the Mac PC version, I would say, but definitely more intuitive for the controls. Um, aside from those differences, it is exactly the same game. The game on iPad is exactly the same as the one that you buy on Steam. And on Steam, we're priced at $10, and on iPad, we're priced at 4 And that's just a matter of managing expectations. Um, if I could charge $10 for a game on the iPad, I would, but no one will buy it. And it, it's, it's silly, I think, but um, I, th I think that... There is there's an, isn't a lot of bleed between those markets, I guess, and for some reason that seems to make sense to people. Like, oh, on the iPad, it's going to cost you know less money. Um, on on Mac PC, it'll be more of a premium thing, and 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 that mentality sort of makes sense. So we we play towards that. But um, it's just it's just managing expectations. You know, I, I know, you know, we we have the um, so the the game again on iPad is four dollars, and the soundtrack is five. You know. 
and the game contains the soundtrack. Plus, there's also the game that comes bundled with it, you know. Um, but for whatever reason, when somebody goes to purchase the soundtrack, five bucks makes sense. Um, when they go to the game, four bucks makes sense. And we we've fought with those ideas for, for a while now, and it's just a matter of you know managing the consumer's expectations, making sure that it, it fits in line with sort of their sort of worldview, and and while at the same time not just being like, oh, well, just make it ninety nine cents because that's no one wants to pay more than ninety nine cents for it. So, um, yeah, I, I don't I don't really feel weird about it anymore. I guess. Okay. Nate, did you have another one? Uh, no, I think that that uh, answered my question. Okay. All right. Well, you said your game on, on Steam was for ten dollars. Like I thought you said you saw it for three fifty. Is that just because it's the summer or the winter sale? Oh yeah, uh, it's everything's on sale right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was about to say. In case you didn't know, <laughs> and I be misquoting my own prices, so it. I, w- I would go and and check and see what we're selling it for. But we still recommend everybody buy the game off of the Safer Prime website. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's one of the nice things if you, if you do buy through the website um, nobody but us get money so that, that helps out a lot um, but again you know, people people do like to manage the things through Steam and, and whatnot. so we, we understand that as well okay now I have a question for you because uh, the last interview we did we actually got into a little bit of a conversation about Steam Greenlight I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. Did you did you do you like the new process? Do you not like it? Like, how do you really feel about it? Uh, we have not used it, um, so it is. We people, people try and ask our opinion on it, and we we feel a bit weird about it just because um, we are in the incredibly fortunate position of having had Valve come to us um, with for Auditorium like long before Greenlight and whatnot. Um, so we already have an established relationship with them. Um, I, I look at Greenlight and I feel good about it. You know, we, we've talked to them about like, oh, what are you trying to do with this? And how, how does the community feel? And really, people don't realize that there's like two guys at Valve or something. And that maybe not, not that few, but the, Valve is not as big of a company as people as you would think they would be for their ludicrous amount of success. And the people that run Steam is an even smaller subset of said company. Um, and so largely, when I see Greenlight, I see a way for them to lighten their workload so that they can actually look at all the, all the games. You know, pe- people would ask us, oh, I, I emailed Valve, my ga- our game thing. I haven't heard back from them. I guess they hated it. And it's like, no, they, they probably literally didn't see it because they get thousands and thousands and thousands of emails a day and there's only like four or five of them. So just send it again and hopefully someone will see it this time. And green light, I think, alleviates all of that. Um, now, I think it, it'll, it'll you know, st- stand to, to wait and see what titles are you know, greenlit and see how they perform. Um, but all in all, I, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good tool. Okay, and did you? Uh, I guess another question: Did you have any thoughts on on the Windows Eight Store? Do you have any plans to, you know, set up shop in there? Um, I am I am loath to add another store to our um lineup, but that doesn't mean I won't do it. <laughs> um, like we we make good touch 
we make good touch games, you know. I, I, we like making games that have only one input, and touch usually works out very nicely for that. Um, and, you know, from what I've seen from Windows 8 and some of the tablets and the, the Surface, you know, it's a fine device. Um, so if their store has a good placement and they have good penetration and it makes, this is one of those fiscal things, you know, this is one of our rare business decisions. If it makes fiscal sense for, if doing it will cover the costs of doing it, then we'll probably do it, do it. So that that's usually the the only measure that we have like oh will will we, will we make our money back yes i guess we should do it so okay so do you have any uh new projects on the horizon you'd like to talk about give us a little <laughs> you know insight on what you're working on well uh, earlier in the year we ran a kickstarter for auditorium duet which is the sequel to auditorium that is going to be a multiplayer auditorium experience um and i don't know if people quite uh, see what that's going to be yet because we haven't really talked too much about our specific plans for it. we we are extremely excited about it and we've been basically making prototypes non-stop for the past uh, couple months just trying to get our networking code together get some of our music visualizing stuff together you know we're trying to make a really um in-depth experience um something far beyond what auditorium currently is and uh, i'm I'm really excited for it i'm gonna go lock myself in a cave and do nothing but compose for a few months which should be fun but um yeah that that's basically what's coming up on the horizon okay so uh i think uh, i think you've answered all of our questions nick Are you, you're all done i'm now i'm excited i want to hear what comes out of that cave when you're done <laughs> <laughs> No idea. Okay, so uh, for updates, you know, they can they can go to cypherprime.com, the new cypherprime.com, uh, with the new store and then the blog, uh, and also, uh, well, what, what, you, what can how can they follow you on Twitter? What's your Twitter? Um, well, at cypherprime for the company, and then at Dane Saint if for some reason you feel like listening to me ramble more. Yeah, you also have a do you have, you have a danesaint.com as well, right? I do, yeah. Um, that that's for more, I guess, side project stuff. That that'll probably end up getting folded into cyberprime.com at some point. Now that we've uh, relaunched and there's more space for that kind of, you know, rambling. Um, but yeah, thingsthing.com is there. Um, then we have music on Bandcamp. You know, music.cyberprime.com. Everything's everything's there. You can find everything. Right, as I say, because if they were interested in to hear hear more of your music, uh, you know, they can just go there. And uh, you have a uh, you're gonna be uh, in the upcoming months. You think you're gonna be at Eight Static again? I'm putting together a show for March. It should be fun. <laughs> okay, cool. Actually, I've I had to miss the last two Eight Statics, and I'm hoping to go to January's and then you know four from there. So I'll probably see you uh, there again. Anniversary show then? Yeah, actually, I missed the anniversary show. I heard it was really good. Ooh, that was a good show. That yeah. was. So, <laughs> yeah, one of my, one of the one of the other guys that worked on the site that works on the site, he went. And he was like, "Oh my god, it was so good! I can't believe you missed it." And I'm like, "Stop talking to me about it, please. <laughs> just just stop." But uh, well, eight static to go to. Yeah, no, I'll I'll stop. I'll stop too. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, uh, definitely. Thank you for coming on the show and and doing this interview. We 
we've really appreciated. It's always good hearing, you know, from the developers directly because you know on the podcast we we typically just talk about gaming news and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of hard to get some like some of the perspective that you know you and then some uh, you know, the other interview that we had some that some of the perspective that you give us because you're actually you know a developer versus somebody who's on the outside looking in, so it's kind of nice. <laughs> but oh, glad to help out. Hope yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And you got to stop calling yourself like a not a not interesting person. That's totally a lie. <laughs> That's totally a lie. So uh, yeah, we're at this point. We're just gonna go ahead and uh, continue with the rest of the show. Once again, thank you, Dane Saint. Definitely check out cypherprime.com and Auditorium Fractal and uh, Splice. And you can get all those on on uh, on multiple platforms now: Mac, PC, uh, iOS, and Android. Correct. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so just check the check those out, guys, and uh, on with the rest of the show. So yeah, once again, that was Dane Saint from Cipher Prime Studios. We really appreciate him, you know, doing the interview uh, with us, and I uh, hope we'll have him back again sometime. Uh, but now we will get into, I guess, our, our normal flow with the topics, or topic, I should say, because due to the time, we're really gonna have a chance to tackle one. I want to talk about two things. One, I, I'll mention it: the burning of the games. <laughs> we're, we're only going to co- cover one co- topic, but you want to talk about two things. No, no, no. I, I just want to mention it, like the ridiculousness of you know it, uh, the the burning of the games happening or the destroying of the games happening in Connecticut right now. Well, uh, go on for a moment. I was just going to say I understand it's it's a very sensitive time, you know, but. This is just not like this is not how you fix the problem. Destroy destroying the games here. I I want to know if if anybody has patented burning your used games as a method of preventing used game sales. You're terrible, Nick. You're <laughs> terrible. I was trying to be a little serious, but you just come in and it's just like it's, well, it's, segue, it's, segue, well, segue, segue, segue. <laughs> like, well, no, to put it in there. Well, well I will say the the one beauty of it though is I, they they said they were giving out some of gift token if you turn in your old games so if they're giving you more gift tokens than say gamestop would give you to actually purchase your old games it may be worth it to go sure they're going to burn the games but you're not going to play them anyway and you can use the the game tokens to buy presumably whatever you want or, or maybe something you can use it for i don't know again i don't have the information about what they're giving out take but. modern warfare 3 and take the tokens and get black ops 2 pretty much pretty much <laughs> And they, they, they get their they get their misguided cause and and we get to play, you know, we get we, we come out ahead and, and and the publishers win because as I said, there's no used games anymore for anybody to play, so it's yeah. a win for everybody except GameStop. <laughs> I guess so. But we're not gonna get into that because we don't don't wanna take up too much time. That's correct. That that's something that's happening right now, guys. Uh but I guess something that it is um I guess how re- I guess really important to to gamers in general uh, is uh, a patent that Sony filed on the third of January, which actually that's today. <laughs> that's the recording. That is the day, day we're recording. That, that is, is the day we're recording day. Uh, I thought actually the patent got filed before I, that, but I'm yeah, looking I at the they date. Filed it on, I, I saw something about like the uh, September of uh, tw- 2012. The date on the patent says January third. Or... That's incredibly fast for them to. To pick Pat that up and subsequently leak, yeah. Hey, well, it's 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 pretty big, but either way, this patent uh, is uh, it basically it stops uh, it, 
no proof that this is going to be on the PS4. Actually, I believe Sony is saying, or in the past, Sony has said that they really don't have any plans or any desire to block used game sales. But this technology would stop used game, like, would stop the secondhand market with discs. Meaning, like, if you bought a disc, it will be locked to whatever said device is, and you would not be able to, uh, you know, I guess trade it into the GameStop because it wouldn't work on a, on a second device. So let's just, you know, for the sake of saying it, let's just say this is for the PS4. You know, so we're not constantly saying the device, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or or the reproduction device as um, the patent calls it. Um, let's just say the PS4, okay? So let's say this uh, this this technology is on the PS4. You know, you would think that they would do it by you know locking uh, the game ID to your PSN account or you know something like that, which would kind of be easy to get around. Um, you know, because you just have to connect to the internet, or it could be really bad where you would uh, be required to get on the internet to play these games, but actually that's not the case, because the patent actually specifically talks about that, that, you know, if they required internet connection uh, on every game or on the device, that that would uh, disservice some users, so they thought about that. But what it looks like is going to happen is that an RFID is going to be placed on the discs, on the actual, the, the, the PS4 discs, and when you put the disc into the PS4, um, the actual PS4 will embed its ID onto the disc. And then when the game goes to play, the ID of the reproduction device, a.k.a. the PS4, and the, uh, the also the authentication ID on the disc would need to match up. And if they don't, the disc won't play. So that's how that will work via RFID. Which, you know, when I thought, when I originally thought about it, I was like, that, you know, how, like, that doesn't, make a whole lot of sense but then i really thought about it for a second i actually i talked to a buddy of mine who who knows uh, a lot about this stuff he's like oh it's totally doable uh and he even told me some places on the disc what he would he would he would actually place an rfid to do such a thing so he says totally doable could be encrypted and it's not that difficult for them to do it at all so that's if they go through with the with this uh you know, and use this patent on the next, uh, on, on the PS4. It's looking like, uh, used game sales, uh, for the, for the PS4 at least will be a thing of the past. And actually, you know, uh, one, one effect of this, of, of just the news of this patent, um, you know, uh, being approved or being developed is that, uh, GameStop's stock price, uh, went down by 5%. After word that Sony had applied for this patent technology, so five percent, well, just just because Sony came up with this technology, not because Sony is actually in, you know, uh, saying that they're actually going to use it. So that's that's very interesting. Didn't the same thing happen though? Uh, that their stock dipped when uh, was it was it Microsoft that was rumored to be doing the uh, the next Xbox as with no disc slot? Yep. Actually, I actually was no, that also the, was that also the Orbis? No, that well, both there's rumors that both the Orbis and the next Xbox were going to be discless, but I can't remember if GameStop's stock actually you know fluctuated because of that. I think I saw. I think I saw that it did. I think the 
one of the Kotaku articles mentioned that the, the stock also went down. Uh, let's see here. The, la- well, the last time, and it, it took a few months, but it did get back up to the, uh, the, yeah. the levels. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, yeah last time when uh, the Durango was alleged to have a similar measure, it dropped uh, $1.73. And it uh, let's see, does it say when that was? That was oh, that was early last year, and it finally got back up to the twenty-five dollar price back in November. So basically, just climbed out of the hole from the last rumor, and now they're dropping this. Oh, and I get the difference between that, you know, between that and this is that that was all rumor, all speculation. Where this is like, hey, they actually have a patent to do it. But this, there's a they have a patent to do it, but we've seen a lot of patents come and go that don't lead to anything. And even then, it, it, it's it's purely technical. It doesn't really talk too much about the actual implementation. I mean, this is something that they could put in there, with not so much to restrict game access. I mean, that's definitely a capability, but it could also be used to restrict access to certain features, especially, you know, I mean, we've already got online passes that uh, basically fulfill the same function. And this is just a technical means of, of, of you know, putting that in motion. So it's, I, I don't know... I, I, you know, I, th- I think even uh, uh, Michael Pactor kind of says that the it's a bit of an overreaction that we it's not something to be quite so concerned about, especially since you know Sony is, has been you know sort of hesitant to commit to anything like this, and, and Jack Trenton in particular even said he doesn't like this kind of strategy. So I think I think it's it's a valid concern, but I, I, I almost feel like used game sales and and Pactor kind of makes this point that if one company just says, hey, we're not gonna we're going to cut off used game sales. It almost it makes the other consoles more enticing because people who like buying their you know used games cheap will say, "Hey, I don't want to buy a, a you know a PS4 if I have to pay full price for a new game every time. I can you know buy you know the, the Durango and I can buy my aftermarket games and save money." And the only way I think a move like this works is if every console maker at the same time unilaterally says, "We're cutting off GameStop." Well, you know, in, in regards, because I agree uh, that if, you know, if let's say Sony says that we're not going to allow used game consoles, one of the key, or well, used games, one of the keys that Microsoft can use in their market is that, hey, we allow used games. Uh, I think that would be a, a big strategy for them and even helpful to a degree. But now the other thing I think about are publishers, are, are the publishers, which a lot, most, I would say most publishers do not like the secondhand market because they're not getting anything from it. So, it's you know while it's more enticing for consumers for the console the publishers which software does move units you know if a publisher if you know Sony comes to publisher hey that that AAA game you just spent millions of dollars on we can make it so that you know second hand it can't be sold second hand so you'll get more money back and so I think Sony already has the edge in terms of exclusives I, I, that's any anybody who argues otherwise. Is blind. Sony has like that edge down pack. And this would just add to that, like you know, their exclusives from publishers, you know, with 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 bigger titles. I think would be even larger. But that's a bit of a catch twenty two, though, because developers will go where the console sales are. And so if if you know Microsoft can come out ahead of time and say, hey, look, you know, we've got this console that you know pe- you're going to want to buy because it has you know longer life with the aftermarket, they might get an early lead in console sales, at which point the developers will be like, hey, we'd love to make this a PS4 exclusive, but the, you know, but you just don't have the install base. We have to make sure this is available on Xbox. Right, but that's that's another thing. That's also just like, uh, that's 
it's a lot of what ifs. That's the it thing. It is because <laughs> if 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 the Microsoft install base is larger, then yeah, obviously, like I, my like the it will pull less weight with uh you know Sony would have less weight to pull with. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. what if the PS4 and the 360 or the sorry the new Xbox come out at the same time and months before both consoles are saying, hey, we have X game, we have Y game. But since they're coming out at the same time, Sony's like telling all these publishers, like, "Hey, they can't re- you they can't you know resell your games." Well, so be, the publishers start siding with Sony and start putting their games on the PS4 that's coming out at the same exact time. But they'd be they it'll all come down to pre-orders at that point, and who and who has a who has a vested interest in this that also would have some control over the pre-order market? That would be GameStop. That is true. That is true. <laughs> Lots so, of what ifs here. <laughs> Lots of what ifs. But I'm still saying, like, and that's that's a good thing. Like, you know, they would have GameStop would be in their corner, but at the same time, if Sony does like does a good job marketing, the consumers will know that you know the that you know X, Y, and Z games are coming out for as PS4 exclusives. No, but once again, back to the what ifs. Like, it's like you know, I like that's like if. If Microsoft comes out first and they their their console is saying, you know, we can allow used games, I think that's a that's a pull on top of the fact that they came out first. But if they're coming out at the same time or generally around the same time and Sony is able to pull deals, like, you know, first party deals, you know, the the PS four is gonna sell better. And that'll put them in a really good position. It could. I'll 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 concede that, but I I, I feel like Again, I feel like with what Sony's saying right now, I'd be surprised if this is actually a feature available at release. Not to say that it won't be there, but I don't think it'll be used. I don't think it'll be strictly used to cut off game access. Now, one of the ways that it's sort of presented in, in some of the articles is that it's something that'll be made available for other publishers. So, you know, as a third party publisher, if you want to use this feature and say, hey, I don't want my game to be you know, available for aftermarket purchase, then I'm going to ha- have this turned on and I'm going to use it. So Sony might put it in the console, but so, you know, all, all Sony games and all their subsidiaries won't use it to that degree, but some of the third parties might. But I almost wonder if this is the kind of thing, though, where Sony might put that in the console, you know, leave it there, maybe just use it for some, you know, to, to, to you know, moderate uh, the usage of some features, maybe let the third parties use it. But depending on how the next generation goes, and especially I think if enough, I almost say if enough sales move online to the point where they almost don't mind cutting off GameStop, I could see them, you know, maybe you know, three or four years into the into the life cycle of the console, being like, oh, by the way, now all our games won't be available after market, and maybe that's something that you know Microsoft sort of has the same kind of kill switch. At the same time, I could see all three consoles mid mid cycle kind of, you know, turning that on. I guess except for the Wii U because that's not in there now. I guess. Then again, if Nintendo could come out with like a Wii U two or something, that might have that in there. Who knows? They'll need something. Yeah. Now, now we're getting <laughs> way out of the speculation. Whether when, when, when the console, when the new consoles come out, but that's a good. I mean, it's, it's a good chance that. Well, first of all, Sony's already said that they really, they they haven't really planned on using anything like this. So they could have just developed the technology and really could just be sitting on it. Yeah. Honestly, they could be doing that. Um, or like you said, they could. It could be an option for for publishers. EA would probably use it, <laughs> knowing them. You know, it is kind of uh, almost like a nuclear option. 
I mean, you, you, you have this and you sit on this and then you go back to GameStop and you say, hey, we want to re- you know, renegotiate some you know, space deals with our, you know, how much you know, floor space you're allocating for PS4 games. And if we don't like what you're doing, we're just not going to let you have anything. That's true. There's a lot of, a lot of different options. Lot, yeah. The, the one thing I did see in the patent that really, I guess, wasn't too fleshed out in the patent, at least from what I saw, was the temporary use um, feature. Well, apparently the RFID will have, you know, you can set a, a number of temporary uses. Now, I don't know if that's an allotted amount of time. I don't know if it means you can actually spin the disc up a certain amount of times or you can have additional consoles locked onto the RFID. It doesn't specify that. But, you know, it does show that, you know, there are options. Like, who knows, maybe, maybe... If you give your friend the disc, it lets your friend play for a couple hours, and it's like, hey, if you want to continue to play this game, unlock it by paying 40 bucks. I almost think it'd be funny. It's like if you rent a game from Gamefly, and you're like, okay, i got to turn it on, and I can never turn the system off. <laughs> Imagine that, though. Maybe, what if Sony took hold of the secondhand market? What if they say, you know, hey, you know, you give the game to a friend, or you let a friend borrow it, and they could, they, it's a trial, like an hour or two trial, because they actually already, I think it was something they already talked about doing extended game demos where you pay for, you know, where you pay like 10 bucks, you play the game for two, three hours, or not, a lot of games don't even last that, well, that's just they last that long, but that's like half of a game sometimes. But you play for an hour, and then you can pay for the rest of the game. They, so they, what if... They sort of already have that on the PSN, they have the, uh, the time-locked demos. Right, that's what I'm saying. So like, what if they did that with discs? I you could be from the disc and they wow power play for the secondhand market. (laughs) 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 I just blew your mind. I just blew my mind. Nice. Yeah. Maybe if Sony's listening to this now, I just gave them an idea, and the apocalypse is really my fault. I would well, we're a little late for that, aren't we? But uh, no, new apocalypses. Would... Every time one fails, the next one's up. <laughs> next one is on. Yeah. No, but uh, no, I would, I, I would, I would have to think that you don't file a patent like this without having fully thought of all the implications, even if you don't plan on using it. Just the fact that they have this in their portfolio. I mean, at the very least, if if Microsoft wants to try anything like this, and they very well might, you know, if Microsoft wants to be the first one to step out and lock out the. The publishers, not that Sony would or wouldn't want them to, but now they've got to come up with another way that doesn't infringe uh, on the patent here. So, yeah. I mean, no, this Sony kind of has all the power at this point, and everybody else has to just kind of hope that they're very kind of lackadaisical in their approach of this because whatever they decide, I think, you know, as much as we we're playing What If earlier, once they start playing their hand then the game becomes very interesting right one thing i hope doesn't happen though is that you know word of mouth gets around for the people who because you know there's a lot of gamers that you know that really aren't 100 percent informed but i hope you know that it doesn't go around that oh you know sony is definitely doing this like sony is that you know did you hear about the ps4 oh yeah you won't be able to play used games when that's really not the case but I feel like those gamers aren't going to care because they're going to be trying to use their Wii U gamepad with the first Wii. No, but I said like, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know a lot of ga- I know gamers are people who have all three consoles and don't know anything about what what's happening in the industry. Like they go out, That's... they buy a couple games a year, 
and you know, like people who don't even know that Call of Duty is made by a different company every year. So basically, you're saying you know people who don't listen listen to the Mashcast. I I do know people who don't listen to the Mashcast. Then we so, got to work on that. Surprise, surprise, <laughs> right? <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, there are a lot of people. Like, you know, think about how big big gaming is. There are a lot of people out there that aren't don't have their ear to the ground, so they might hear a rumor, you know, that or they might just hear that. Oh yeah, Sony has this technology. It's going to be in the PS4. You can't sell. You can't you know play used games on it. That I think could hurt Sony. It could, but I feel like it's too early for that though because we still. I mean, well, I'm not talking about right now. I mean, like in the future. Well, I think I think it'll be interesting to see if this is mentioned in the feature set when they finally announce the Orbis. Because yeah. I mean, it, it's. <laughs> they, I, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't talk about it at E3. <laughs> but it's it's one of those. Well, especially now, people are going to be asking about this if they have any kind of press conference or any kind of you know hands-on experience where people are talking with the developers. This question has to come up. Like, how is is you know is it going to restrict these games? And and I think that'll be interesting to see if they say no, we didn't put that in here. We're saving that for the PS5. Or, you know, or, yeah, we're putting that in there and, you know, things are about to, you know, get really interesting. Yeah. So I guess we'll see. You know, we had, we had, we had a nice, nice what if session right there. <laughs> That's all we it, can really do right now. Just because it's a new year doesn't mean we stop being the speculation cast. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you can really do right now. Plus, like, news right now is really thin. I mean, you got that going on. You got the, the disc burnings. <laughs> what? I don't know if they really burn the discs, but it's like, you know, it's kind of like the old book burnings. I don't know if you want to burn them. You're probably, evil! Uh, evil! Maybe run them over with a car or something. I don't know. The evil would keep them alive. But, uh, yeah, like not, not a whole lot going on right now. That and the guy from War Z is apologizing for how arrogant he was to his customers. I think we briefly talked about that. Like last week, uh, actually, Nick wasn't on last week. But um, no, no, yeah. no, not not for the what was it, like four hours of, of of podcast content that you guys produced. Two hours, two hours. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who didn't know, um, War Z kind of came out, but I think like people were paying like twenty bucks for it, and the game, like basically the features that the game said it had, was not the features that were actually in the game. Uh, and the response that the War Z developer gave uh, was very arrogant and negative and stuff like that. And so, you know, after Steam took action and removed it, uh, and I think they also ran into some trouble uh, because of some copyright infringement. Now he was saying, you know, that he now he's being apologetic, saying he was very arrogant. Well, it's a little too late for that, my friend. But uh, yeah, nothing really happening. We're still in that 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 lull. Well, even in the lull, when it comes to games coming out, I mean, I'm looking at the list here, and uh, ugh. <laughs> just that, <laughs> the horizon is so meh. You know, Demon Souls coming out for PSN next week. Uh, Angry Birds trilogy coming out for PSN. That, if I catch anybody playing that, just I'm gonna take your PS3. I'm gonna throw it out the window. Yeah. Why? Why play it on your PS3? Why? Cause it's big. You have, you have it on your phones. You have it. You can. You have it on your computer if yeah, you want to. You on your PS3. Uh, if you know, if you got a you know nice enough TV, the birds are probably like the size of your head. So leave me alone, can... Nick. <laughs> Take your screen, hold it up really close to your face, and it, <laughs> that'll be like playing it on the PS3. Um. Let's see. Also. Well, you know, I, I you know I am being judgmental because there's a lot of games that 
I would play on my PS3 that I also play on my phone. So, yeah, let me. Let me I, I, I'm, that's messed up. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you like playing Angry Birds <laughs> on your PS3. <laughs> Uh, but I guess the, the 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 next big release coming out uh, is DMC or Devil May Cry with the emo Dante on the fifteenth. It looks like January fifteenth. So we finally get to see if people, you know, because there was a lot of bitching about the new Dante, a lot of bitching about him, and uh, you know, actually there were there were a lot of tunes changed too after the demo came out. Even Joey Men he wrote a uh, article on our site about his feelings on the new Dante before and after uh, playing the demo. So, and he actually has uh, close ties with the first DMC. Like, he worked with the stunt team who did the stunts for Devil May Cry, the, the, the original series. So he has a picture with those guys and all. Damn. Yeah, so. But yeah, his tune even kind of changed with that article, and you can check that out on the site. But uh, yeah, that's that's gonna wrap it up for us. Feels a little weird, doesn't it, Nick? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, for you guys, it's probably the <laughs> the, the regular size podcast for us is like, yeah, record the beginning, record the end. Okay, see you, see you tomorrow, Nick. Yeah, we we just made up the whole interview with Dane Saint. That didn't actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> no, but definitely, like once again, thank Dane Saint very much for taking the time to. You know, talk to us about the, the interesting Dane Saint. I should add. Yeah, the very interesting Dane Saint uh, for talking to us about Cypher Prime and you know their games and you know how they do things over there. And uh, you know, you can we'll be back next week. You can catch us on SoundCloud, SoundCloud.com/slash Mash Those Buttons. Uh, you probably listen to it on SoundCloud right now. Uh, we're on iTunes. You can subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can. Uh, Listen to us on Stitcher Smart Radio, which is available for your iOS and Android devices. Uh, we're also on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash mash those buttons. We're on Twitter, which is twitter.com slash MTB site. And uh, we're on YouTube, which is youtube.com slash mash those buttons. So, yeah, that's how you can keep up on what's going on with mash those buttons. Um, have, yeah, actually, we have our, our must plays of 2012 actually somewhere out now and we'll have more uh toward the end of this week and uh for next week as well so you can read those because we decided not to do a top 10 list everybody's doing, like a top 10 top five we don't really don't need to do that you you just didn't want to admit that journey was the best game last year journey so you, not... you, you abolished the whole concept of the list so you didn't even have to worry about that happening dude first of all journey is is it's interactive media <laughs> it's, it's, journey is interactive media I wouldn't call it a game. You know, now, now that you've now that you you've come around with Max Payne three, accepting that that games are art, I think you should go back and replay Journey. If you can replay Max Payne three on hardcore mode, you can take the ninety minutes to replay Journey. No, I can't. It's well, a waste of time. It's the well, same thing every time. In your mind and just shut up, Nick. <laughs> Jesus Christ! No, I am not going to waste my time and play Journey again. <laughs> I already wasted two hours of my life doing that. Well, see, you didn't do it fast enough. I didn't do it fast enough. No, because you know what? I tried playing with other people. And I tried interacting with them, and then they would just do stupid stuff. Well, that yeah, that 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 does happen. Yeah, like the guy. Like I told you about the guy who jumped off the mountain. Yes. And I just looked down, and I'm like, dude, I'm not jumping down, man. I walked away. Like that's that's the correct response. Yeah. 
But that's a, yeah, we're not going to get into it. <laughs> Journey was not Game of the Year last year. I don't care who says it was. It was not. It was FTL. That's a game. <laughs> <laughs> that's a game. I don't think it's Game of the Year, but that's a game. <laughs> so I'm like halfway there in the argument already. Right. You're halfway there, yeah. All right, guys, well, that's going to wrap us up for uh, today. So. Once again, thank you for uh, tuning in, and we'll be back next week, hopefully, with the whole team. Have a great weekend, everybody. Later. <laughs>